We're in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Um, I want to pick up with verse 25. If you're following in your notes, it's actually at the very bottom of page 11, but it's page 12. Um, let me um, ask you to observe a couple of things. First of all, in verse 25, you see the phrase, I'm rather certain most of your translations have this now, concerning. And if you go back to chapter 7, verse 1, you see now concerning. If you look at chapter 8, verse 1, you see now concerning. That's a very important structural marker in the book. That apparently, and I think that's the right way to look at it, uh, in Greek it's peri debt. Now, all that means and all I'm saying there is it's a marker that indicates he is responding to another question here. Remember when we started this section, chapter 7 through the end of the book, uh, several weeks ago? Uh, this section of the book, the Apostle Paul is responding to written questions that they had sent to him through uh, three individuals who visited Paul in Ephesus. That's mentioned in chapter 16. So our challenge, as you know, at least I hope you remember this, our challenge is to figure out what was the question. <laughs> it's like Jeopardy. You have the answer. You have to get the question. And uh, the sheet that I gave you when we started this section of chapter 7, uh, I think most of you have this, uh, I've tried to put together what those questions might be. This one is a little more difficult. By this one, I mean chapter uh, 7, 25 and following. Uh, so if you have that, uh, it's this sheet. Does, does everybody have it? I mean, okay. I, I only have one left. <laughs> but that's all right. It's okay. But it, it, this is a little more difficult. The other questions were... were uh, somewhat simple. This one, if you're looking at the sheet now, the question is not so clear. Most likely it is, should engaged couples marry? This must be a matter of personal decision, but at very troubled times, Paul sees ahead, single people will find it easier to work out their Christian priorities. That's a summary of what he says. So, um, the second thing to observe is this is not written as all of the other parts of chapter 7 to people who are married. This is written to people who are not yet married. Whenever I've done my premarital counseling, the first session, we always start with this passage. And I try to talk them out of it. And I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious, but in another way I'm not. Because Paul is saying some things here. That when you make the decision to get married, things really change. And he does say twice, if you choose to marry, it's okay. It's not a sin to get married. But I want you to understand how serious this is. So I'm not sure how all of your translations, because I don't know how many there are in a group this size. But it begins in verse 25 now, concerning virgins. I don't know, is that, does everybody have that? Or do you have something different? Is that what everybody has? Now concerning virgins, it's, it's a common word in the New Testament. It's parthenos. It's just a common word. So is it referring to those who are married but have not consummated the marriage, or is it referring to those who are not yet married? Well, it seems probably clear that he's referring to those who have not yet gotten married. And he's using a very general term. 
So I'm going to put it the way we put it in our culture today. These are couples that are engaged. They've maybe set a date. And they're moving forward with the planning. And so Paul now talks to them. So the question may have been something like this. Paul, um, things are tough. Things are hard. We have a number of our young folks that are engaged. What would you say to them? This is his response. I have no command of the Lord. Now, we've seen that before. Don't stumble over that. All that means is Jesus never addressed this subject. It doesn't mean that he's about to say, well, this isn't as important as what Jesus says. All he's saying is, I can't pull or draw on anything that Jesus has said, because he didn't talk about this. I give an opinion as one who, by the mercy of the Lord, is trustworthy. And so he's, in effect, saying, I'm an apostle, and the counsel I give is trustworthy. Even though Jesus hasn't spoken to it, I have apostolic authority, and what I'm going to say is important. So that's all, that's all that verse means. Now, if you look at your notes, if you're following those in page 12, the counsel of Paul is, I would prefer that you not get married. I think then that it is in verse 26 that this is good in view of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is, i.e., not get married. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. And the, the language there is, is the language of you've made this commitment because even in the ancient world, once you announced your engagement, you were considered husband and wife, even though you hadn't yet consummated. Now, a good example of that, I'm sure you remember that, a good example of that is in Matthew uh, chapter 1, when it's speaking of Joseph and Mary. They are still engaged, and Mary finds herself pregnant. You remember that? And Joseph makes the decision he's going to divorce her, because the way in which you ended the engagement is you went through a legal process. And, and then you know the story. The angel intervenes and says, no, Joseph, don't do that. She, the, 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 the child she's carrying is of the Holy Spirit. You know the, story, you know the story that's an important part of the Christmas event. So all Paul is saying is, don't change things. But if you should marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin should marry, she's not sinned. Man marries, girl marries. Yet such will have trouble in this life and I'm trying to spare you. That's a tough thing to say to a young couple that's absolutely in love, romantically enthused, unbelievably blissful, can't imagine any problems ever occurring, and I come along and say, present distress, trouble in this life, I'd really prefer you. Prove to me why it's God's will that you should get married. Kiddingly, that's what I say to them. And the guy always speaks first, and he talks in, in, in wonderful metaphors of how important she is to him and how he can't live without her and so on. Why do you think Paul is saying this? Present distress, verse 26. Trouble in this life, verse 28. <laughs> Marriage is the most important institution there is to God. It's the first one he created. 
first marriage ceremonies performed by God in Genesis chapter 2 between Adam and Eve. I don't remember reading this as premarital counseling God gave to them, do you? God didn't sit him down saying, no, look, before I do this, present distress, time of trouble. Obviously, that's a silly thing for me to say, but what's Paul getting at here? What do you think? Do you have any thoughts? My mindset is that version says present crisis. Mm-hmm. What was going on there? Well, Dave, in a way, that's what I'm asking you to think about. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the situation in Corinth was, and we, we talked about this many times, this is a wicked city. It's a Greco-Roman city. It's a cosmopolitan, immoral, kind of decadent city in many ways. And so that has something to do with it, probably. I think he's talking about a lot of distractions. If you're married, I think he gets into it. But as you're married, you're going to have concerns of that partner, children, all the stuff that goes with it. Maybe I assume he was referring to distractions that would come about that would might interfere with my walk with the Lord. Mm. Okay. So children and your wife are not as important as Jesus. Right. Uh, Andrew? Um, I, I just think that, and the, granted, this is a much more modern illustration than, say, it was in Greco-Roman times, but I'm, my wife and I are going through a Dave Ramsey class right now, and there was just an example used of this young Christian couple who was finishing college, and they were going to get married, and they both had this passion for, they wanted to go on a mission in South America. But each of them, through their college education, through their elite college education, racked up $90,000 of debt. And they were going to get married. And the the reality dawned on them that they couldn't go on mission at that point. So it kind of feeds into the distractions of it. You know, my other, I'm married, it goes Jesus, wife, everything else (laughs) right now, you know? And so the, the... Jesus is the first priority, but my first ministry is to my wife, mm-hmm. so therefore my first ministry can't be mm-hmm. to my brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's good. You had a cluster of comments there, Andrew, that are very very accurate and very good. And that, that kind of situation that Ramsey's bringing up about uh, the indebtedness of young couples largely due to college is a growing, a growing reality. It's actually a growing problem in many areas, not just uh, in the, just a larger society, but for Christians, because it, it does impact what they can do, or maybe a better way, what they cannot do. Um, okay, anything else? Wasn't this a time where, you know, persecution? It, persecution? it would be, uh, it would be increasing, it's very localized, but it, it would be increasing in the mid-50s, so there is increasing hostility, you know. Distraction, these type of relationships would be. So, Paul's, as we talked earlier in this chapter, in all likelihood, Paul's a widower. And so he's, he has already made the decision, presumably, that he's not going to remarry. Um, that, that seems to be the situation. So, listen, I mean, all, everything that everyone said is, is accurate. Let me, let me distill it down into a kind of a simple premise. If you think marriage is easy, it's not. Marriage adds to the burden of living. Make sure you understand that. 
He's not saying anything about the bliss and joy of sharing life with a partner. He's not talking about this, the joy and the bliss of the sexual intimacy. He's not talking about the joy and the bliss of a partner with whom you can communicate and share everything in life. But he wants him to face the other side of it. It's hard. And in light of the distress and trouble of living, living in a fallen, broken world, don't think that it's going to be necessarily easier. It could actually be more difficult. Marriage and subsequent children coming along adds to the stress and burden of living in a fallen, broken world. Now you say, well, why is Paul putting it so negative? It's not negative. The joys and, and the incredible centrality of marriage and family to God is all over the Bible. But sometimes, what Paul's bringing up here, sometimes in a fallen, broken world, marriage also is a burden. It's stressful. It's difficult. And Paul says, in light of that, make sure you understand what marriage is going to add to your life. Most young people don't think that way. And that's okay that they don't think that way. But my job in the first session is to make sure they're thinking that way. Simply, to, isn't that, I mean, do, do you disagree? No. I mean, it's, I'm not trying, I'm not. I mean, I've been married for 44 and a half years, the best decision next to trust in Christ I ever made. But at the same time, what he's saying, distress, trouble in this life, it's added to that. It's added to that dimension of living. Until Christ comes back, this distress and trouble of living is going to be a reality because we live in a fallen world. Is he saying this as a model from this point forward? In other words, you know, if I had the decision to make, no one would be married forever? <laughs> or is he constraining this to a period of time, saying because the, of the times that we're in... But I don't know if he is certainly not universalizing this as a principle because, right. if, again, if you look at the beginning of verse 20, if you should demar- decide to marry, you're not sinning. You're not sinning. It's like wise counsel. Let, let's be better. Go into this with your eyes wide open. That's how I talk about it when I'm talking with young couples. Make sure you're going into this with eyes wide open. It, don't be naive. Um, but doesn't he later say... You have to be, you know, you have to be called to this. So it's not, you know, to uh, to not be married. That's something you have called to, to not be married. Yes, yeah, he said earlier. Yeah, actually, says that earlier, earlier in this yeah, chapter. And he actually uses the word uh, charisma. It's actually a spiritual gift. Mm-hmm. It, it, uh, let's put it another way: celibacy is a spiritual gift. And the test of whether you have that gift is, do you struggle with lust? If you do, you don't have the gift. So get married. <laughs> now, seriously, that's basically the bottom line of what he's saying. So and I'm trying to make sure we don't misunderstand this, and, and I'm glad you asked it that way. He isn't universalizing this principle and saying this is for everybody. All he's saying is marriage is really for everybody, in a sense, unless you have the gift of celibacy. I just want you to make sure. If I could counsel you, I'd say tough it's tough 
Maybe you should rethink this. If you look at Paul's life, there was no room left for marriage the way he was. I mean, he was that on fire. And he said someplace else, if you could, it's better if you can live like me. Yeah, right. But knowing that you can't, you know, do what, you know, marry if that's what you need to do. But you can put, devote all your time to Christ if you can be like me. Mm-hmm. That's coming so, up. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that's right. I mean, if nobody got married, we wouldn't propagate. Well, and it's, it is, it is and I, something I've come back to a couple of times. I'll say it one more time. It is the most important institution God created, and it is the most blessed institution in so many ways that God's created. But Paul's saying, don't forget, this wonderful, blissful institution is being lived out in a fallen, broken world, and it's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. And um, in some cases, you're spouse may contract a very difficult disease that's going to even make it more difficult or a disability i mean it's just all of those things because once you make the decision you can't go back we learned that earlier second reason verse 29 and following but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they were not possessed, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use, for the form of this world is passing away. Now, you probably have already observed there are five as-though statements. I'm not sure if all your translations translated as-though, but I think you can see it. What's he talking about? Well, the governing phrase is the time has been shortened. That is always Paul's vocabulary word. I should say vocabulary phrase, maybe. It's always his phrase, the way he talks about the next event on God's program is what? The return of Jesus. Nothing else has to happen. You follow me? The Bible speaks, the New Testament speaks, we are in the last days. That's, that's how uh, the book of Hebrews talks that way. Uh, the, uh, Paul talks about that way in Second Timothy. We're in the last days. What does that mean? That doesn't necessarily mean that, although I think Paul lived with that expectancy that Christ would return even in his la- lifetime, When the Bible says that last days, it means there's nothing else that needs to happen. And uh, in the notes I put it, the imminent return of Christ. What's imminent mean? Happen any moment. And from the Bible's perspective, there's nothing else that has to occur. You know, the Old Testament is looking forward to the first advent of Jesus. And 376 prophecies detail what that first advent is going to look like. Okay, now that's all completed. Now the next block of prophecies, and both some old and, and some in the new, talk about the second advent of Christ. But there's nothing, there's nothing else that has to happen. His death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension has occurred. The Spirit has come. Nothing else. In the, so the very next event is Christ's return. And that's why Jesus says, you know, especially in the Olivet Discourse, be ready. You don't know when I'm coming back. Be ready and be faithful. And what Paul is saying here, and this is, it's 
It's figurative language, but he's saying you should be living in such a way that Christ could come back at any moment because this world is passing away. Is marriage going to enhance that commitment to living as if Jesus will come back in the next second? Or is your marriage actually hindering your passion of living as if Christ is going to come back at any minute? Do you understand what he's doing? We should be living as though he's coming back any second. When all of the things that you normally do, you have to remember, they're going to disappear in just a second because Christ will come back. The weeping, the rejoicing, the buying, the selling, the normalities of life are going to end the moment Christ returns. Is that how you're living? Do you understand that? So he's saying again, how will your marriage impact your commitment to the imminency of Christ's return? When Joanna was growing up, she would, would, you know, we talked a lot about the return of Christ and all that. She said, Daddy, I hope Jesus doesn't come back till I get my driver's license. <laughs> so then she got her driver's license. Then she said, you know, Dad, I hope, I hope that Jesus doesn't come back until I get my first car. Well, she got her first car. Then, until I get married, Daddy, I just hope Jesus... Oh, so now she's married. Now what is it? Well, it's, yes. you know what I'm saying. It, now it's children and finishing her master's degree and all those kinds of things. But it's, and you and I are the same way, aren't we? we? Yes, I want Jesus to come back. But I'm really having a pretty good... This is a good year. If you want to hesitate a little more, Jesus, that's okay. Now, I'm being facetious, but Paul, he's using language as kind of figurative stuff, but time is short. This world is passing away. Is that the way you're living? Or are you holding on to things that could actually hinder your service for the Lord? And all he's saying is marriage can cause you to hold on to things that will affect your commitment to Christ's imminency. I think that's obvious, isn't it? So it's not that it's evil. Paul wants to slam it right in their face and say, you're not yet married. You're engaged. Things are hard and they're going to get worse. Is marriage going to enhance or hurt your abilities to represent Christ in times of distress? And if you believe that time is shortened, that the next event in God's program is the return of Christ, how's marriage going to affect that? Do you follow what he's doing? It's, it's the only place I know of it in the Bible. It's the only reason I, I've used it. It's the only place I know of in the Bible that really forces young couples, well, or older couples for that matter, but couples, to really think through why they're getting married. Just think it through. Because if your spouse, your potential spouse, is going to hold you back, maybe you should think it through a little more deeply. Jim, uh, can you comment on the the balance of what you see between uh, uh, 
a couple getting married and then reinforcing one another uh, in the ministry of the Lord. Because we all know certain missionaries and, and uh, Christian couples that minister as husband and wife to, to different groups. And in some ways, um, that couldn't come about without that union and that reinforcing mm -hmm. of that and praying for one another, have a spouse, having a spouse pray for you. Um, I mean, can you, I mean, do you have any remarks regarding that? Because I know, well, you know you'd, you'd credit. Yeah, I mean, a spouse can either enhance what God is calling you to do, both of you, or a spouse can hinder what God's calling you to do. My favorite example of God hindering someone is John Wesley. John and his brother Charles and others were in a little club at Oxford University where they were studying it called the Holy Club. Uh, and they, they were really committed to helping each other grow in the Lord. And they made a pact that they would not get married until they talked it through with the other guys. You know, to really think through the importance. So Wesley met, Wesley met this woman, Molly, was her nickname. And they fell in love, and he made the decision to get married. Didn't tell Charles, his brother, Charles Wesley, you know, you've heard of him, and George Whitfield and others. And they were aghast when he got married. And his brother Charles said, John, you've made a terrible mistake. You shouldn't have gotten married to her. I don't think this is going to work. And the history of their relationship was horrible. There, there are records of, of, of her pulling Wesley across the floor by his hair. The very first, because Wesley traveled about a quarter of a million miles. Uh, he was a great, you know, and you know the story of Wesley and the great Wesleyan revivals in England and all that. And she, she went with him one time. It was a disaster. And from there on out, she never went with him. And in Wesley's journals, the day she died, he wrote, my wife died today, and it was it. He did not go to the funeral. Mm. And I'm saying all that because she was a tremendous hindrance to him. And it was a burden that was almost impossible for him to bear. But you look at others now, you know, because of what Billy Graham's ministry did this past weekend, and apparently there's a... TV show coming out about him or whatever. But Ruth Bell Graham was his life partner until she died recently. Incredible enhancer of his ministry. So, the, I mean, the answer to your question is, is by illustration. There are many, many, many illustrations of great individuals throughout history. Martin Luther, uh, key leader of the Reformation, he married Katie Von Bora, a former nun. And that's one of the greatest marriages in the history of the church. Absolutely one of the most important men, because she was truly his partner. She was extremely intelligent, very gifted. He depended on her. He says that again and again and again. So, uh, I mean, I don't know how to answer the question. Yeah, that was good. It really, it matters. And that's what Paul is trying to get them to see. And I think that's why it's such valuable counsel for young people. Well, well I mean, or older people who are remarrying after death or something like that. To just think through, how is this marriage going to impact your life? Yes, you don't want to be lonely. Yes, I mean, all the things. But have you thought through? Because what Paul is bringing up are the realities of life. And then the third reason, which begins in verse uh, 32, is it will 
you will now face the reality of divided loyalties. Loyalty to Jesus and loyalty to your spouse. Verse 32, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. Now that's not an evil statement. That's not a statement that is saying something that's bad about marriage. It's just saying something that's a reality about marriage. Because marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a lifetime commitment. And the moment you say, I do, you now have divided loyalties to Jesus and to your wife or your husband, whatever the case may be. You see, and that's that's all he's saying. If you don't get married, you have the potential of undistracted service to Christ. As the Bible makes it clear in lots of other places, as I illustrated in response to uh, Fred's question, a partner in life can enhance that service. Just make sure you've thought that through. I know of a young man who he has passionate about going to, to Latin America to minister. He made the decision to get married, and he discovered, obviously it was something they didn't really talk about, he discovered she didn't want to do that. So he never went. Now, I don't know, you know, I can't in any way presume to know what God's perfect will for this young man was. But I know where his passion was. He got married to this, this gal, and after a period of time, it, that passion just died. Because she didn't want to go. She wouldn't go with him. Now, I'm saying all that only to, as an illustration, and I don't presume to know what God's will for his, him, him was. But it's the kind of thing that's all Paul is saying. Just make sure you've thought that through. Because the moment you get married, you now have divided loyalty issues. That's not bad. It's not evil. It's just a reality. Okay? Don't you think that it's tough when you get in a situation where somebody's coming to you with that pre-marriage counseling? Because in their minds, they pretty much have, they pretty much have made that decision. It's got to be tough. Because like, I, I teach a relationship class at the prisons. And what we really push, and it's unfortunately done more of a secular way, but it's got a spiritual, a scriptural foundation, is to get those questions out long before you get so far down the road that you've just kind of already made that decision that this is the one. But I just think it's got to be difficult when you're sitting there with somebody that you've gotten engaged, you know, you're getting them when they've already gone down that road, and then you start playing those questions. That's going to be an awfully tough thing for somebody to walk back from. No, I mean, the reality of what you're saying is accurate. Because he should have been talking about his love of when, when, when should we talk about this stuff? When they're in like junior high. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, seriously. Exactly. This should be something that this should be something that is talked about, preached about, talked about among families, among the kids, I mean, parents. This is the kind of stuff, you, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's I've, there's only been one couple in all the years I've, that I, I've done, and, and I didn't really have anything to do with it, but they made a decision not to get married. 
And it was right at the last minute they just made the decision. This is not really the wise decision for both of us. And so they, they pulled back and, and didn't, never did get married. But that has nothing to do with what I was saying, or even this. But, um, I mean, you're right. It's pretty much so far down the, 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 the trail that it's not gonna, they're not going to pull back from it. And, I, and I'm not saying they should pull back. It's simply, all, I think this is the way to use this, this passage of Scripture to, in a very positive sense, how serious the decision to get married is. In our culture today, I mean, one, you, you have an increasing number of just cohabiting relationships, which is growing quite rapidly in our culture. And um, yet you also have uh, a divorce rate, although it's somewhat leveled off, it's still about for every divorce, or every marriage, there's two divorces. It's kind of a very serious, because we're looking at a superficial, shallow, not that really important of an institution, and yet it is. And I think that's how we should use a passage like this. This is teaching how serious that decision is. And he says in verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to put restraint upon you, but to promote what is seemly, seemingly beneficial, to secure undistracted service to the Lord. Marriage should enhance service to the Lord, not destroy it. Jim, uh, I think as men, we tend to let our wives, uh, especially with daughters, uh, and, and you know, I know some of you for many years, that um, men are uh, slow to approach this, or maybe uh, with their sons, and certainly with their daughters, and maybe, I don't know what, uh, you know, we've got, you know, a newly married here, and um, what's the responsibility of husbands uh, to their children? Is it how would you rate that as far as equal uh, to talking about what you just mentioned to their children? Do you think the husband has the same responsibility as the as the wife? Um, do you think they should sit down together, or what? What do you think is most beneficial in that regard? You, you mean for two children, to, to the children, to, uh, yeah, your, your, to your the children? children to get them to this point. Well, Paul's talking about. Yeah. It. Well, my own conviction is that the, the husband, father, she's uh, is supposed to be the spiritual leader of the home, um, and I think even though the wife may and and should be and wisely should be involved in communicating and teaching these kinds of things the, the father the husband should make sure this is occurring you know there are there are lots of there are lots of things out there for us right now good tools really good tools um, there's the passport to purity program which I think we've maybe talked about before there are lots of other tools where you're you're, you're just starting a methodology in your family with your children and so on that's getting them as early as you can do it feasibly to be thinking about spiritual things and things that are important to God in a passage like this. Mm-hmm. You know, that um, um, set your ideals high for marriage. Set your goals high for marriage. I remember uh, there was a gal that 
I knew her family very well, and I knew her because I'd known her since she was oh, about eight or nine years old. And she came to Grace, and she, I knew what her her ideals were really high of a guy, really high. She she was very very careful about her dating. It wasn't anything her dad was just, just because of her family. She had set her goals for her. And I was teaching a winter session class, and in walked this transfer student, and I watched her. Ignore that. I watched her, and I thought, and she, for some reason, she was just right. Oh my goodness! And then the next day, they were sitting next to each other, and when her initiative, she went up and, sit, and they just started. He, he's really a sharp guy, really neat, really committed to the Lord, and. Um, I lost, my, lost my train of thought. Um, well, anyway, they they dated and so on. It was really a neat thing. And then they asked me to do their counseling and then do their wedding, which which I was privileged to do. But that was an illustration to me of a gal who she had decided beforehand one the kind of girl she wanted to be and two the kind of guy she wanted to marry. And it was really it was really neat. Now, today they're uh, they have four children. I mean, they, they're, they're, they're just a real special couple to me. But I use that as an illustration. I'd love to see that kind of, uh, that kind of a scenario repeated again and again and again and again in our, in our homes. But the guys and the gals, they just set their standards pretty high. They set their goals pretty high. And they're willing to wait until the Lord brings across their path you know, a, a person that, and I, you know, and, and they, she went into it and he went into it because we spent a lot of time on this passage at the beginning with the clarity that we want marriage to enhance our service and devotion to the Lord. And we've talked a lot about that. To me, and this is how I've used it and how I would apply it, that's how you apply a passage like this. You're not, in a way, you, you sort of are, humorously speaking, but you're not trying to talk them out of marriage. You're just trying to say, do you really understand what you're doing? Do you understand that this should not hurt your relationship with Christ? It should enhance it. It should not hurt your service to Christ. This should enhance it. It should not diminish the anticipation and excitement of Christ returning. It should enhance it. Because that's what he's saying. with uh, my three and five year old repeatedly next to a decision for Christ yeah. this is it this, yeah. is, this is the most important decision you will ever make yeah. and if yeah. you just keep reinforcing that it sticks well we hope it does that's right that it, it, this is the best thing we can do for our kids is just really model it but also just keep talking about it that's right alright both are focused on serving the Lord that is the primary focus. Then it's God bringing them together. Yeah. It seems to be a better, more lasting, another example that came to my mind is Jim Elliot. Mm. Uh, he, uh, he married a gal who, who had the same focus and the same mm. thing, and they felt that they could do more together. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and she carried on after he died. In, in, a, in a way that was just so it's um, 
I, I want to leave this now unless you have any additional questions. This is a little bit of a difficult passage to deal with, but yet it isn't. If we understand what I think is the right way for us to, uh, to look at this. Well, he concludes then in verse 39 and 40 with, um, and I think this is the right way we should look at it, with, uh, with widows. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. What does that mean? In other words, he should be a believer, right? I mean, he—it's he, the unequally yoked uh, uh, phrase that's over in Second Corinthians. But in my opinion, and that's important, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. <laughs> Meaning, I'm—you know—just because I may not say what you want to, I'm just telling you as an authoritative spokesman for the Lord. My opinion is she should remain single. That's what I've chosen to do. But this is Paul speaking. But, as he says again and again, it is in sin to choose to be married again. So, I mean, that, that, verse 39 and 40 are very consistent with what he's been saying throughout this chapter. Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, as we bring this to a conclusion, unless you have any additional questions, but as we bring this to a conclusion, is really one of the most important chapters in the Bible on marriage. It really is. It's, it's one of the most important chapters because it touches uh, every category that there is in, in marriage. And it's, uh, it's a great chapter. So, Joel. Verses 36 through Yeah, I was, I was just hoping to skip that, but um, it is a, an extremely difficult passage in the grammar of the Greek here. I mean, it is difficult, uh, Joel, because there are two major views on it, but basically, um, I'm reading New American Standard, it's being written from the standpoint of the father. And what the father's uh, responsibility is in this situation. Um, If she's of age and she's made that decision, it's not sinning, let her go. Let her get married. But if there is a concern and she's not sure, uh, try to talk her out of it. But whatever you decide to do, as long as it's in the Lord, it's okay. <laughs> and again, it's trying to um, it's the other the other perspective or the other way because it's a very verse thirty six is an incredibly difficult verse in the Greek. I mean, it really uh, people tear their hair out over this thing because the other the other perspective is that it's being written from the perspective of the guy whom she's going to marry. And translating the virgin there the way it's translated in verse 25, thinking of the engagement. If the engagement has already occurred and you're willing to go ahead with it, go ahead with it. But if you have reservations, pull back. It's not good. Don't get married. So it's either, whether it's the father or the husband, it's if there's tentativeness, pull back. If there's no tentativeness, go ahead. That's uh, maybe the best way to summarize it. 
if we take a high view of marriage, which I think the Bible encourages us to do, then chapter 7 enhances that very high view of Scripture as it is presented uh, throughout the Bible of marriage. Nothing should diminish it. Nothing should diminish it at all. Can I ask you another question? Yeah, please. Um, you know, as, as spiritual men, I mean, spiritual, not whole, not perfect, but seeking God's will, if we have a child who we know is going to be thinking of divorce or is thinking of divorce, what is our role uh, as parents in, in counseling them regarding divorce? Because I know in a lot of instances across the United States, we don't have a father there, and we're men here, obviously, but uh, what is the role of the parents, husband and wife, in this regard when this issue comes up? I'm thinking of getting, uh, divorcing Dennis. I just have had it. Um, do we have a responsibility as Christian parents? <clears throat> Well, uh, I mean, I don't have to answer that other than yes. Well, However, I don't mean to put that word in yeah, your mouth. Yeah, but to... How do you, can you balance it out a little bit? Well, you know, two things here. First is kind of obvious, but nonetheless I think it needs to be said. Uh, your daughter uh, or husband uh, or son, whichever it might be, uh, is an adult who's making responsible decisions on their own for which they are accountable to the Lord. And... Um, I think that's important to just always remember that. But at the same time, uh, even though they are making independent, responsible decisions for which they are accountable to the Lord, if they are open to your counsel, which is always important, sometimes they're not open to your counsel, and they don't want anything to do about it, and they want to hear what you have to say. But assuming they're open to that, uh, and I mean, and seriously willing to, to listen, then I think we should try to do everything we possibly can to preserve the marriage. I mean, I think reconciliation is always, uh, in a marriage relationship, is always God's ideal. But in the fallen brokenness of our world, that isn't always going to be possible. But I think we should try to do whatever we can to keep the reconciliation as a goal. I don't know what else to say about that, uh, Fred, because I think it uh, that that is the that's the approach we should take. But sometimes our children are not willing to listen. There's not a good relationship with children, you know, whatever those many scenarios can be. But um, we have talked about uh, other things that can come into a relationship, like abuse and things like that. But that's not the way you ask a question. All right. Let's introduce chapter 8, because we will just, uh, we only got a couple of minutes here before we're done today. Now notice the first two words of chapter 8. What are they? Now concerning. So it's a whole new issue. Whatever was going on in chapter 7 is now completed. He's asking a final, uh, he's addressing, not a final, he's addressing an additional question. Now, um, if you look at the outline, um, this begins, and it really lasts through chapter 11, this begins a discussion about Christian liberty, about Christian freedom. Um, let's talk about that. Can, can we 
lay that on the table today, and then next week we can pick up with this. That's not the option. Something's a little darker. As you're going to see next week, because we will not be able to get into the, the details of this, but I want to I want to get this on the table because what is going on in this chapter, and it will continue through chapter 11, is the matter of our liberty, our freedom in Christ. Um, the specific issue here is eating meat sacrificed to idols, which you and I don't face that issue today. So that doesn't have anything to do with our life. However, it is, it's, it's an important principle to get on the table, and that's what I want to try to do. Liberty or freedom in Christ has to do, first of all, with the non-moral, or if you will, amoral areas of life. Now, I, I don't know if you understand what I mean by that. The non-moral or amoral, you know, when you put an A in front of the word, it negates it. Amoral, okay? What's that, what do I mean mean by that? What, what's, what's the essence of this? Liberty or freedom in Christ does not mean we have the freedom to sin. That's not what it's talking about. We never have the freedom to sin. We never have the freedom to, God, to violate God's moral and ethical standards. Follow me? So it's dealing with the non-moral areas of life, the amoral areas of life, areas to which God has not directly spoken. And with the Old Testament law and all of its uh, kosher laws and everything now set aside, that's part of what's going on in this chapter. It's kind of like, Paul, do we have the freedom to go down to the idol temple and take my wife out, that was a social gathering place. Can I eat the steaks that are there in the idol temple? Did Paul's answer? Yes. You can do that. Because you understand that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's a good gift from a good God. Enjoy it. But then there's always a but. But, if someone sees you do that and misunderstands what you're doing, then pull back. So that's, that's just the scenario. So it's, it's freedom in these non-moral or all-moral areas of life. It's freedom from bondage to sin and bondage to the law. It's freedom from. It's freedom to serve God and others. They're all the dimensions of freedom in Christ that are addressed in the scriptures. What's going to be talked about in chapter 8 is this issue. And he's going to bring up these things as we get into it. But this is a profoundly important issue. Because what was happening in Corinth is some of them were saying that liberty in Christ equals license. You know what I mean by that? You can do whatever you want. That's not what he's teaching. So it's a, it's a creative and very powerful presentation of what, uh, let me put it another way, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful presentation of responsible freedom in Christ. What does that look like? And the challenge, and, and I don't know if it's a big challenge, but the challenge is taking 
the situation that he's talking about in chapter 8, which has nothing, nothing even comparable in our lives to this. We don't wrestle with the issue whether we go down to Omaha somewhere or to a temple and go in and eat meat sacrificed to idols. We don't have that issue. But I've often thought of one like this. Do I have the freedom? Before Peggy got sick, we, we, she would always like to go out to eat on a Saturday evening. So let's just suppose that she weren't ill, and, and it was a Saturday evening, and I said, Honey, let's go over to Harris. They have a great buffet over there. I don't even know what it costs, but I'll make up a number. It's $7.95. Let's go over there. And she says, here's my question. Do I have the freedom to do that? Yeah. I have the freedom to do that. That's kind of a somewhat comparable scenario. But in exercising that freedom, that may not be the wise thing for me to do. Because, I mean, I, you know, I don't know, I'll make something up. Suppose Peggy and I did that, and um, as we're walking into Harris, two Grace students, why in the world they would be there, I don't know, but two Grace students see us. They were witnessing. They, they were, that's right, they were outside presenting Christ. There you go, thank you. So they, thank you, Joel, you, you got it. So, and they see Peggy and I go in there. Automatically, a whole bunch of issues come up. I have the freedom in Christ to do that. But Paul says, and you know what we concluded many, many years ago, no, that's not a wise thing to do. It's just not something, because suppose a guy or a gal who really wrestled with addictive gambling issues saw us go in. Well, if Ekman can go in there, I can go in there. And they, they go in and they eat a meal, but all of a sudden they see the slot machines and all the things that are drawn back into that old lifestyle. The Apostle Paul's counsel in this chapter is, you know, it's really better for you not to do that. Not because you don't have the freedom to do it. But it's better for you to responsibly think through your freedom in Christ. That's where he's going with us. And what I want to try to do in our, oh my goodness, got to stop. What I want to try to do in our time together over the next couple of weeks is, is get the situation in Corinth down, but start to draw out some principles that are really important for us in our life today. Because there is probably nothing, well, that's maybe too strong. One of the things that so divides us in evangelicalism is how we think about liberty issues. I mean, I grew up in, in a fundamentalist kind of background in, in, in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, where, I mean, it was just, we, we, we defined our lives by what we didn't do. And we didn't do, didn't do this, didn't do this, didn't do this, didn't do this. And that's how we defined our life. Because the people who were leading us in our church were universalizing their convictions for everybody. And Christians didn't do this. And did, okay, now where's that in the Bible? You just don't do that. And, I was, you know, and I'm, not, I'm not mocking them all because I'm thankful for a lot of what I, I, I grew up with. But it's that kind of situation that what's responsible liberty in Christ look like? And how does one maintain the joy and fulfillment and purposefulness of life as we exercise our liberty? And if you think that's not a difficult topic to address, you are sheltered. <laughs> that's a hard area. More importantly in raising kids with that. How do you help them to be responsible in their liberty? That's what we'll deal with next week, okay? Father, thanks for these last uh, verses of step seven. Lord, I hope 
the way we went through them, and especially as I led the discussion, was in tune with your spirit. Um, I believe this is how we should apply this. If anything I said was not of your spirit, dismiss it from our minds, but help us to focus on the clarity of what is being taught there. Marriage is so important. It should never be taken lightly. It should never be approached lightly. A decision to, be mar- to get married should be fitting with our commitment to you. Is it going to enhance that, or is it going to tear it down? That seems to be one of the application points Paul's making. In all of our marriages around the table here, Lord, strengthen our marriages, strengthen our commitment to our wives, strengthen our commitment to our kids, help our relationship with you to be at the center of our lives so that our kids and our wives can see how important Jesus really is to us. We pray that you'll watch over us the rest of this day, guide us in all we do, as we try to carefully pray each time we're together, Lord, help us to represent you well. In this we pray in your son's name. Amen. See you next week.